people that they joke about being a perfectionist. Like they say it like, oh, darn, you know, I wish I wasn't such a perfectionist. It's uh, okay. I have a strung out a tightrope in my life and it's called perfection. And I'm going to spend all my time thinking about that tightrope because I can't fall. Because if I were to fall, then I'm not who you should think of me as. I'm not who I think I am. And that is, even if I'm always talking about how I messed up, that's so much pride as well, because it's still the obsession about who I am and who I ought to be. Pride, gossip, laziness, and negativity, the four horsemen of a team. Hello, my friends. My name is Chad. This is the Naked Leadership Podcast, high-stakes conversations for relentless company founders. My co-host and I have over six decades of combined experience in leadership coaching, and this podcast is where we explore it all. There's no conversation too risky. This week, Dan, Adrian, and I sit down and develop the idea of the four horsemen of a team. This is in relationship to John Gottman's four horsemen of a relationship, where he can predict with some ridiculous rate of percentage how people's relationships or how their marriages will end up because of these four horsemen. If one of them is present or multiple ones are present, he can predict the success or where the relationship or the marriage is going. Now, it's going to be tempting for you to listen to this conversation from the perspective of, wow, I can't believe people are like this. I can't believe teams are like this. But my invitation to you is to actually listen from your own perspective, from how you are generating some of these horsemen or tolerating some of these horsemen on your team. It'll be a much more powerful experience for you and you can create places of improvement for your team, for yourself and for your team as it relates to these four horsemen. So I'm really grateful for this one and it, it, uh, it opened up so many new perspectives for me. And I can't wait for you to listen. Let's dive in. Dan, Adrian, gentlemen, it's so good to be with you. Mm-hmm. Good to be here. Good to be here too. Uh, I'm really excited about this conversation. This, Dan, this was uh, as we were chatting about what we want to talk about next. You sent this across, and it just like it was a light bulb for me. Um, you know, I uh, I'm fascinated by John Gottman and a lot of his uh, research and the way that he frames things. Uh, from his research is pretty interesting to me. Um, there's, of course, I mean, there's a lot of nuances in it and and some things that I don't appreciate, but this this idea of the four horsemen of a relationship has always stuck with me. And it's actually been a really powerful tool in my own relationship with my wife to be aware of some of these things that the Gottman Institute talks about that are the four horsemen. And you sent across a list that is the equivalent for a team. I would say the equivalent for a team. These are things that you could pay attention to, watch out for, and 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 um. Re- I don't know. I don't know the right word to use. I'm I'm struggling, but like resist these at all cost. Yeah. And let me do a. Can I do a second on Gottman real quick, just because people Please. might not know who we're talking about? So John Gottman is is probably the most, I was going to say the most famous, probably not. Perel is probably the most famous. But he is the authority in marriage counseling. So John Gottman Institute, check him out. He became popularized or famous because, and I'll miss the details here, but essentially he could sit with a couple for something like 10 minutes, maybe even less than that. And he could identify with like a high level of 
accuracy. In the 90-something so, percentile. 90-something percentile. He could make the call if that if that marriage would still be in existence like two or five years or however many, I forget how many years, down the road. He's that accurate. And part of what he was doing was spotting trends. So he had these things that he ended up calling the four horsemen, and they are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Criticism, defense, or sorry, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And so he knew if he saw those, even like a small bit, that that would grow. Um, and that's why he was able to make the call and make the prediction with a high level of certainty that they would be divorced X, X number of years later. So just a little bit of background. If you're interested, if you haven't, if you're in a relationship, in a marriage, want to get married, read Gottman. There's much free stuff out there and it's amazing. So anyway, that's some context behind this. And I thought this is the same, Chad. I thought it was really brilliant, Dan, when you were thinking about this around team life. So big, big frame for me is if I want my team to work, that is up for grabs. That question, do you want your team to work? Do you want to have a team that stays? And do you want it to be healthy? Like you can assume that that's just a yes and yes, but it's not. Um, some people don't want a team. Some people don't want a team to be healthy and be connected. There's lots of reasons to not have that, uh, which we can get into, you know, if we want to, or another episode. Um, but let's say you do want a team to last and you love these people and you want to do it for the next 10 years together. Um, then wh- what is it wise for me to have a really clear sensitivity for so that I can see trouble when it's a 0.5 instead of waiting to like most people they went to troubles at 10 out of 10 what can I notice when it's small what are the indications um, of uh, small um, cancerous you know conversations that end up killing you know a team so that's kind of the big frame for this and I thought it was really brilliant Dan when you brought it up as well love to explore it where did it come from for you, Dan, by the way? Where did it come from for you? Have you been thinking about this? I have. Just kind of thinking about the things I've seen and participated in that I've contributed to the breakdown with other in, in, on other teams I've either put together or have been part of. And there are the four, you know, pride, gossip, laziness, and the negativity are kind of things I identified. And in, you know, there's a proverb that says, guard your heart because from it come the you know, flows the the issues of life, basically. And so guard the heart of the culture of my team, uh, how we work together, because from it come the issues that we're going to end up navigating with each other. And so, you know, pride, gossip, you know, these basically um, laziness and negativity are are constant, and, you know. There, it's not like, like even even with Gottman, when you think about the the four that he talks about, you know, you, you think about criticism, contempt, def- defensiveness, stonewalling. It's not like you're not to have those. It's like, do I recognize when I'm in them? And, but but first, what happens is, what happens on a team when pride and gossip and laziness and negativity start to take over like like where do you where do you first see that and what what usually triggers that off and i that's why i start with pride because i think that's where it begins and i think the rest flow off of that 
Well, let's start there. I, I wanted to go through each one with you. Um, and just like you're saying, we'll talk about recognizing early signs when it's small um, and what we can do when we find that these things are on our team or within us. What what's what conversations can we have um, that can open up new possibility uh, that can not allow these that they can be present like you talked about it's not that we never engage in them but they can be present but not not have us we have them yeah and and um yeah go ahead well i mean there's two senses of pride because pride's used like i'd say you know like a healthy sense of self-respect and self-esteem dignity is not what i'm talking about I, that 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 often is what people mean in the culture like i'm proud of my team I have respect for my team. I'm dignified towards the people I work with, the customers I have, and the crew. You know, the, I honor the 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 practice of our work, etc. That's that's often used. Pride's often used in that context, but the pride I'm talking about is hubris. You know, um, it's I would call it like negative pride or toxic, and hubris is that over. You know. Uh, an inflated sense of oneself and the need to look, be the you know center of attention, the the need to be acknowledged and constantly held up. Uh, you know, I look for external validation. Um, I I do what I can to keep myself in the front. If I didn't have the idea, then it wasn't a good idea. You know, these are these are, and and people tend to then what happens when that happens is people tend to withdraw, right? And they tend to start to gossip about how difficult it is to get any any a thought in or an idea in, in edgewise, or they've got to accommodate by making it, you know, my idea, etc. Or, you know, you know, you could think about it, you could be a leader and you could have somebody on the team who's so wrapped up in their ego and their pride and their need to be acknowledged and be significant that you feed the monster by like, because they're a big performer by continuing to do that. And I've done this, so I'm not pointing any fingers and I hold them up and say, this guy's really awesome or this gal's really awesome. And then that, if they don't hear any, if they, if that's how I'm going to relate to them only, if I'm not having authentic conversations with them, the tendency then is they're going to expect they're going to get entitled and if they don't get what they want, you know, it's interesting because pride breeds cowardice. And if they don't get what they want, they're afraid to risk because they might lose the attention and the and the benefits that they've been getting from, you know, the leader, myself, or other people. And and they, they so they'll tend to withhold, they'll tend to sandbag. They'll tend to, uh, and they'll start to gossip in order to undermine other people so that they don't look so bad. Like, if I'm really proud, if I have a, you know, an, an overinflated sense of myself, when I do something that doesn't work, well, it couldn't, I, I didn't do that. After all, you know who I am, right? And so now I'm blaming other team members, which stokes the gossip mill, and and if you think about it, that's a form of laziness on my part because I'm unwilling to own my contribution. 
So, you know, I start to breed laziness into the organization. If I get away with it, other people see that it's okay to get away with it. And they start to get lazy the same way that I am, but they may not get, you know, if, if I'm getting away with it and they don't, well, now they're going to get negative and that's going to stoke the gossip again, right? So I call it corporate witchcraft. <laughs> that's what I call it. Because, look, if it's not going well for me, and I think it should always go well for me, obviously, and, and, and it's not, then somebody else must be to blame. And doggone it, you know what it is, Adrian. That Chad, every time we turn him loose, mm -hmm. this shit happens, and I'm a little nervous about it. He always does it. it. It's no. just a matter of time. Just a matter right. of time. And, and think about witchcraft. It's like a spell. I start casting a spell on you, Chad, through my gossip to Adrian, which starts to undermine, you know, even if he pushes back, if he doesn't really intervene, the point is he's going to start looking for the same thing. That's what you naturally do, right? And if you think about it in politics, they do this all the time. If you can pin somebody, even with a lie, enough times, other people start looking for that lie. And it's, it's a curse, right? It's a spell. And then it starts to undermine their ability to develop credibility where they ought to probably have it. Right. So, so that's a, we're talking about wicked stuff, man. Well, it is interesting. It, essentially, kind of the idea of reputation is a spell, you know, either, even positively or negatively, just because we know the way the brain works, like that, because we listen through a filter. Um, so, whatever the reputation, like Chad's honest. So, if I believe that about Chad and that's his reputation, then I'm probably not going to notice when he's lying. Or if I were to notice it, I would transform it and make it about something else or shoot, no, Chad wouldn't do that. Chad's always honest. So anyway, the idea that's... I might be so devastated that I completely disrespect him from there on. Like, he can't have any room. You talked about, um, in this idea of pride, Dan, we did an episode probably a couple months ago on blame, shame, and credit. Yeah. We got a bit of feedback on that on that episode. You know, people... Uh, it was all it was all great, but it was eye opening to them that credit was in there, and and uh, and and that's you know you talked about this pride thing is like this is the start of it. This is where it begins, and in and needing members of the team to get credit for specific things, uh, it, like crediting them for the thing that happened, and neglecting the idea that we're a team and we're doing it all together. And that I couldn't, I couldn't accomplish what I've accomplished on our team without you two, or without Eileen or Aaron, or you know, you know. And so to be credit, to to take the credit for it, or to want the credit for it, is that start of pride that that initiates this cycle. And and it negates like the point is anything. I could, if you think about our team, everything we do is so. Like I was thinking about this other day, I, I can say okay, I did this, but it wouldn't have happened without this person doing that, that person doing this. So how much, you know, like like your mind wants to go there. So if you get, but if we're if if I if I'm looking up and saying, well, what what worked, what happened here? It's a different world. Like how can I contribute to this going further? How can I, like that's a whole other world. But if credit's the big deal that I'm going to take it into my identity. And the minute I do that, it stokes my pride. And now um, 
I'm going to find myself defensive uh, in a bad way. I mean, like the other thing is, well, you shouldn't be defensive. Well, actually, sometimes it's important to defend the idea, not yourself, or defend the the act. Like there is a place for defense, but it's not. It's an open defense. It's like this is how I see it. This is what I think. Now tell me what you think. It's not a preservation of your pride. No, it's a here's what I think about this, and I'm standing by this. And now tell me what you think, right? Versus this is the only way it is. But that pride, man, that pride is, and it cuts learning off because I can't learn because I'm already the one. I'm, yeah. I know from personal experience, I mean, I've, I've participated in this many times. It's like when I want the credit for something, I want to, I want to ensure that I'm going to get that credit. So I might gossip preemptively to make sure that people understand like, oh man, I'm the one working really hard over here, making all this happen. You know, Joe over there, he's not, he's, he hasn't done shit on this project. And just so that you know, when this thing's a success is me. And if it fails, Joe. <laughs> so, you know, Joe brought this to the county and this. I thought it was a good one, but Joe really fouled it. He really didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I, I I was just listening to a podcast this morning. Um, What was it? Diary of a CEO. I like most of what that guy puts out. And he was, just had this relationship guy on. And he was making some very interesting conversations around uh, this kind of idea of perfectionism, which is a pretty new idea. Um, he was just saying his point, and I won't spend much time on it, but his point is that we're the first, in his view, we're the first time in culture we're trying to have a non, we don't have religion anymore as a culture. And for him, I don't think he's a religious guy, but he was just saying this, that one of the beauties of religion is that it broke down your pride like there's in most religions there's a concept of original sin we're all fucked up so get over it uh, but now in a culture we have now that it doesn't have any kind of humility baked in from some kind of theological view that you know it's we're just left to ourselves and we're looking to go be perfect and we better be perfect and so that is obviously that's the context new, in which new religion that's a new religion right on yeah i'm god actually <laughs> you know <laughs> I, getting what I want is the most holy quest. Um, but I, anyway, it just it it uh, connects in here around people that they joke about being a perfectionist, which is really uh, like they say it like, "Oh darn, you know, I wish I wasn't such a perfectionist." Um, but it's it is it is a it's a okay. I have a I've I've strung out a tightrope in my life, and it's called perfection. And I'm going to spend all my time thinking about that tightrope because I can't fall. Because if I were to fall, then I'm not who you should think of me as. I'm not who I think I am. And that is, even if I'm always talking about how I messed up, that's so much pride as well because it's still the obsession about who I am and who I ought to be. Life is not fair. It's what you negotiate. Let me say that one more time. Life is not fair. It's what you negotiate. Now that's an interesting thought. If that's true, it means that everything you have in life right now, the possessions, the relationships, the fitness, the mindset, are all a product of your negotiations with others and yourself. And if that's true, wouldn't you wanna be very clear on how you negotiate? 
what's effective and what's ineffective, what your strengths are and what your blind spots are. It is, after all, producing all the results in your life. So here's the deal. We put together a 15-question quiz that you can take in five minutes or less and find out exactly what your negotiation style is. The results of this quiz will give you insight into your strengths and blind spots in negotiation. It will also give you insight in how you can accentuate those strengths or compensate for the blind spots. Think for just one second with me all of the conversations you're having in your life. Think about compensation or advancement conversations with people on your team, discussing financial decisions with a partner, or just getting your kids to get their damn shoes on so that you can leave the house. All of these conversations are negotiations. This simple yet powerful tool has the potential to reinvent the way you get what you want in every aspect of life. Go to negotiation.takenewground.com right now or click the link in the description of this episode and find out what negotiation style you embody. You can thank us later. Now back to the show. That's what I mean by cowardice, right? That's To me, that's the foundation of cowardice. It, it, that's what I was thinking about when I thought about this. I've been, I've been looking, I've been thinking a lot about the connection between pride and cowardice in my life. Like when I'm cowardly, I'm too proud to die. That's what that's what has come up for me, and 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 I get lazy because I don't want to understand because understanding might mean I'd have to die, and so I want to maintain the delusion. Or you know, when somebody says, "Oh, I'm so disillusioned," I always say, "That's good," because now you're you get you're getting over the romantic sensation and you can face the reality, and I think that's. You know, for me, that's been a big deal in my life is is when I get proud, I become cowardly. So if I find myself cowardly, I can actually say, I find myself in some, I'm pulling out, I'm selling out, I'm afraid to say something. I wonder what I'm protecting about my own pride, about my own sense of self, right? And And if I can't get you to get on board with it, well, then I get negative about it, about everything. There's just nothing you can do right, and this doesn't work, and pretty soon I've talked myself out of the relationship. What are the ways, as you identify this cycle? Well, I mean, if I'm cowardly, that's one. If I'm, if I'm unwilling to say what I need to say, two, if I'm unwilling to hear what somebody else has to say, just to hear it because they'll often interrupt or not want to hear it or shut down like that that can that's number two i start to attack them in my mind when i'm not with them i'm finding fault with them i'm trying to leverage my perspective by the faults i find like this justifies my not wanting to i shouldn't have to say this to them and then I go and talk to somebody else. I tell other people what I haven't told the person. And those are all indicators that I'm now, I'm, I'm going off the reservation. And th that sooner or later, there's a shit sandwich or buffet coming my direction, depending on how long I want to play that game. But those are the things that come to my mind. If you're a leader and you're recognizing some of these things on your team, where would you coach them to start? 
Yeah, that's what I was just thinking because I'm guessing if you're listening, and especially if you work in the corporate environment, um, and- you're probably like, "Oh shit!" I mean, this is all we do. So <laughs> well, now what? Well, well, you know, I think the answer there is pretty easy. It is Maven. Maven's the answer. <laughs> um, you know, that that's why our I think our the way we work with people is unique in the sense that we know that unless their thinking shifts the way they're relating to what they're doing, they're going to keep producing what they already have in a different forms, different shapes, forms. So I think that it begins with me taking on my own thinking. And if I don't have somebody like you two or my wife or Aaron or, you know, Bethany, anybody on our team, Elizabeth, we were pretty good at saying, hey, you know, we ought to talk, Adrian, or we ought to talk, Chad, or Chad says, Dan, we ought to talk. I, there's something, if we don't have somebody like that, well, that's what Maven is created for, because built into it is the recognition that really every leader, every great leader wrestles with being an imposter. That's what we're talking about. The pride is the imposter. And I'm building an imposter and I'm trying to maintain the imposter. And to the degree that I try to maintain it, I'll start to, there'll be a lot of peripheral damage around me because people will have to pay in order for me to uphold this vision of myself. Right? So the way to do it is to first catch, am I willing to own me as the common denominator in the breakdowns that I'm in? Do I notice the similarities or patterns in the breakdowns I'm I'm working through with people? And what do how like how do I justify those? What do I get from them? What do I get from these? Like and, and look, man, there's it's like it's not like you have to fix it because it's designed to get you what you want. You I've actually designed with my sense of you know entitlement a whole set of conversations that justify me doing things that I wouldn't want done to me in order to sustain this imposter. Now, you know, if that's what you want, no problem, more power to you, but you ought to be thinking, is that going to bring me the future I want? If it doesn't, well, shit, you can make a shift. You can redesign the system. And it starts with the brain. And that's part of what I went after with Maven is because I use Maven it's funny because I had this whole conversation with Maven around pride and 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 uh, and cowardice, which she didn't make the connections right away. When I started making it, she did. She started searching the web and shit. And so, oh, you know, first she wanted me to define pride, which I did, and then she pointed out that there's another sense of pride, which we talked about. It's, there's good pride, there's positive pride, negative pride in her language. I would say. Yeah, okay. I don't know if I call that pride, but I call it dignity more than anything. But okay, good. And then but she did identify a false sense of self as pride. And that's that's the one I'm talking about. That false sense of self. And that is the imposter. And every one of us knows that in ourself. I think at some degree we know that there's something we want people to think about us even at the cost of our own authenticity. Yeah. I've been and sitting I think there as- that's Go ahead. Hey, no, go, go, buddy. No, I'm just, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about what are the fruit of these four horsemen. And as I was thinking about pride, I first wrote insecurity, which is 
definitely there because like I'm an imposter. That's a, there's an insecurity and I spend so much time trying to prop up or try to live my persona instead of being myself, you know, and I've, I've, you know, done that for decades in my life. Um, but it's insecurity and anxiety. Like there's so much anxiety that comes with pride. Um, with gossip, one of the fruits of that is isolation because we end up tearing everyone down and be the one that's tearing everyone down. Anybody that's wise around a gossip does not stay around them because they know they're just the next target. Um, but that's you're going to end up living isolated. Uh, laziness, I, I put shame because I, I'm, I'm with you around, I think I'm with you. I mean, my, my view of humanity is we're built to be productive and our souls need progress. Like we need this sense of, of that I'm moving towards, I'm becoming a person I like more over time. And if I'm lazy, then I am, uh, acting out the lesser version of myself, right? I'm withholding myself and then I'm going to feel shitty about it at some level, even if I'm really justified, I, I say at a soul level, we know it. And so, you know, there is uh, shame around that. And then negativity is obviously despair. Like if I am living in the world, like nothing's working, it's not going to work. People can't be trusted. I can't be trusted. Then the future is not worth having. And, um, back to that podcast, back to that podcast I was talking about, Back in 1900, there was a book somebody wrote around the difference between the technological age and the agrarian age. And he said, uh, and this, I think, became the study of sociology. That's what he said, I think. Anyway, uh, the distinction in that is that it is in a technological culture or a now more per, uh, a perfectionistic culture, suicide. Like the most successful people kill themselves. That hadn't ever happened before. But now, whenever, like, we're, if, if perfection and um, being the best version of ourselves is now the aim or one of the main aims in our culture today, that's why people off themselves when they're not who they could be. So anyway, all that to say, if I'm living negatively around myself or other people, I will end up having so much despair that sometimes I'd make the ultimate choice and just end it. Yeah, I think another one is I think I need to be fixed. Like this, like the way it is, I mean, people don't like me because uh, this is just the way I am. And I can't change. I can't transform. I'm, I need to change myself, but I don't know how. Versus, hmm, I wonder what I'm trying to tell myself when I am this way. Like, what, what am I, what is, what am I signaling to myself needs to be seen that I don't often see when I act this way. Like, in other words, there's there when I'm defensive or I'm shut down or I uh, avoid, you know, whatever I do, what is it that that avoidance, that shutting down, that anger, that aggression, what is it signaling that I haven't seen up until that point? I keep missing. Can I... Can I be with it in a way? Can I embrace it, hug the cactus in a way that it enlightens me? And, I, you know, I had an interesting discussion with a friend of mine who's a philosopher. He insisted that we're about fixing people, and then he got off it. But I realized, in a way, it makes sense. Yeah, we take the ground. Yeah. 
And I said, well, it makes sense that you would think that because we are actually working with the psychology of individuals in a way that they can bring forth their phenomenon, the phenomenon they are, in an authentic manner. And um, so we're not trying to fix anybody. We're trying to say, hey, is this the future that you want? If it is, go for it. You're on the path. If it's not, then you can actually make a shift. You can actually transform the way you're relating to what you call yourself. You can actually relate to the things you would say are your faults as your allies. Like they're, like that's what Jung would say. Like they're there to help you realize you're on the verge of an apocalypse. You're on the verge of destroying the very thing you say. They are revealing to you these four horsemen that we just described. They're revealing to you that something is wanted and needed in the culture to open up a new possibility, one you haven't seen or experienced in the history of the organization. And what happens is when you get up against it, you try, you get caught up in it and try to get rid of what you think is wrong rather than listening and embracing it to open up what's possible. And that's distinct from fixing anything. That's about, that's about, Throwing a new, that's like having the future now. Like, I'm going to embrace this. It takes a lot of balls, it takes a lot of guts and courage to accept the things we don't like about ourselves. I mean, I, I think that's a, it's a big leap. It's a big leap for most of us because, I don't know, it's a, I've always said, I don't know, for the last, when Brene Brown, you know, hit the world with, with the, the big shame conversation. I won't get into Brene and my thoughts on her, but at least I it, it elevated uh, what I have always thought. I know from my lived experience that like when I was a teenager, shame came um, and who I shouldn't be and who I couldn't be and who I needed to start performing to so other people didn't blah, blah, blah. You know, I just think shame is like the, the real global pandemic uh, that won't ever be going away. So might as well, you know, start seeing it. And but you can't you can't shift anything you can't see. You can't shift anything you don't accept because it's not in your hands yet. You know, but if you accept something, then I can see it. It's like, oh, no, no, okay, it's here. Here it is. Look at this without having judgment of it. That's what I like about the Buddhists or whatever, like the whole non-attachment idea. Um, one of the main benefits of that is, okay, I can just look at this thing and not have a moralistic view of it, not, not have it's wrong or bad or broken. It's like, okay, I, you know, I am ashamed. There's nothing wrong with being ashamed about X. Or it's like, like I have an addictive personality. Okay, okay. Let's take a look at that. There's lots of upsides to it. There's lots of downsides to it. Let's get real about it. I like to go all in. Um, that works in some contexts. Doesn't work in some contexts. Have the t-shirt of both. Now, let me just, okay. I'm not to be trusted with most things. <laughs> you know, naively. Naively, not to be naively trusted. Shame is the reaction, I think, of pride. Like, I, oh my God, they're seeing the imposter. I'm really dead now. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that is a sign of pride and shame to self-preservation. The more I try to preserve this idea of myself, 
the more shame I feel because I'm aware that I'm not that. And they're going to find out, oh, shit. Yeah. Adrian, you, you listed off really beautifully the, the fruits of each one of these things, like where, where, they, where they end up. Um, there's also some other fruits that I'm thinking about that may keep you uh, wanting to perpetuate this cycle. Which is, you know, and, and if you're looking at it going, well, why do, why do we do this? Or we got to fix this. And if you're listening to Dan and Adrian talk about, we're not here to fix you or fix your team or fix this cycle. We're here to offer you the possibility of something new. You think about this for just a second. Why would I want this cycle on my team? Why might I be contributing to it or keeping it around or tolerating it? One of those reasons might be you might get some good performance out of it. Uh-huh. At least for the short term. For the yep. short term, yeah. You yep. might be getting some results. Like your sales might be might be really good because of this pride, this credit, or this, you know, shame or blame, or it keeps people on their toes. Or, you know, I, there's I just I want to invite people to think about what what am I getting out of having this on oh. my team? Well, one I gotta share a story. I I was running a training company once and we had a, we had a pretty good budget. We were doing about ten, five, six, seven million a year in this particular office that we were working in. And every Christmas, I said, I said, you know, your our what if we were creating the seasons of our business? Because every year they would say, "Don't do a training in December." And I'd say, "Why not?" And they'd say, "Because nobody has time for training." In December, they've got parties and the holidays. Like, well, we could do an early training. It would be so beneficial because people will it'll set the weekend, the, the, the holiday up beautiful. Nice thought, Dan. It's a romantic sensation. And, and I thought, well, okay, what if, well, can I, can I give it a shot? And I was willing to put, you know, my annual bonus online for it. And, and we, we broke the cycle because... We found the value in, like, this would be so valuable. Now, was the training large? No, but it was big enough. And the it was, we always, that, then this thing started going after we started doing that. The December trainings may not be the biggest, but they're the best because people come in really ready to go. Whole different narrative, whole different narrative. And I'll never forget, it was the big, one of the biggest wins of my career was, you know, being able to get that in and, and, you know, I wonder how often we are actually creating the seasons we have in our own business and with our own teams, and you know, like like that. There's there, how much of that is self fulfillment because of the way I view and participate in what comes up. I just create the very bias that I'm saying is reality. Yeah, this is great, man. This I this is this has got legs for me. I've I've got so many so many other content and I, ideas and stuff around this four horsemen idea, but I think it's really powerful. Yeah, well, it touches all of us, right? So I think one of the big conversations here is like n- none of us. How do I say this? Like we we all do this. First off, we all do this, and and we're not bad for all doing this. We're just human for all doing this. So it's be good to like. To start there, if you're listening to this, and I'd invite you to listen to it again, because you you might have been listening to it like, oh, I can't believe people do it. No, listen to it. How do I do this thing? How do I, 
you know, either. And I might I might not even have the, uh, the amount of courage to do this out loud. So start there. Like, how much do I keep this to myself? But I'm in this conversation with myself and shine some light in there and, you know, and tell the roaches to stay still. Don't run to the corners. No, no, stay here right in the middle. And let's talk about this. How am I proud? Like, you know, how how do I how and when do I do you want to be a good guy? Like, I want to be seen as a good guy. How do I gossip in sneaky ways? Where it's like, when do I justify my own laziness? You know, do, how do I compare myself to other people and just make sure I'm doing more than the next person versus comparing myself to my own capacity and my own internal commitment? Like the, like the type of person that I'm committed to being that I'll be proud of in 20 years. If I compare myself to that guy, how am I lazy? And that answer is like, oh shit, that's strikingly lazy. Um, you know, and when do I... When am I just negative and I call it wisdom? You know, so anyway, re-listen to this thing and think about it for yourself. There's a lot of, I know I'm invigorated as well. Let's do the, can we just do five hours together on this? Anyway, I guess we will. I guess we will. Probably will. I have a feeling there's a product coming out of this one. Yep. We've got it. We've got a few more episodes coming up too. So we can, you know. Yeah. It's an infinite game, brother. It's an infinite game. It's an infinite game. (laughs) Great. Thank you guys so much. Love you guys. Yeah. Bless you. All right. Bye-bye, everybody. Well, my friends, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Naked Leadership Podcast. As a heads up, every Friday we post a Cliff Notes version of that week's conversation with all the highlights in under five minutes. Check that out for a quick and powerful reminder of the principles discussed. I hope this conversation has been valuable to you. If it has, the greatest compliment you could pay us is sharing it with somebody who could use it. Thanks so much for listening and until next week, bye-bye everybody.